0: Baseball history. Roger Maris smashing home run number 61 at Yankee Stadium. Just about 25 miles from there sat seven-year-old Howard Kalman in the Sheepshead Bay neighborhood in Brooklyn. Born a rabid Yankees fan, the shot by Maris inspired Howard to dream big. He wanted to be that radio voice... Calling the shots. Leceman's pitch, ground ball wide of third, glove by
1: Floorman to second one. Hanson to first, double play. O two pitch. swung on hit in the air to right center field. And that is trouble. It is I think when you call a game, you should be enthusiastic. You should paint the word picture and tell stories. I think your knowledge of the game is so vital to a baseball broadcast because of the fill time between pitches.
0: A walking encyclopedia when it comes to baseball. A native New Yorker. Now a Hoosier sports radio legend, the longtime voice of the Indianapolis Indians, Howard Kelman, his path to the broadcast booth, how the game has changed, and his take on the greatest players to ever play in Indy. He's my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Howard Kellman probably never imagined he'd call more than 6,600 baseball games in Indianapolis, far, far away from his roots in Brooklyn and his beloved Yankees. But Howard has and is now in his 47th season describing the hits, runs, and errors. And it uh, truly gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome to the podcast the voice of the Indianapolis Indians, truly an Indianapolis sports institution. Howard Kalman, Howard, uh, how are you? Gary, I'm doing great. It's an honor to be on this show with you. Well, I tell you, you know, again, institution, icon those those t- terms are, are are thrown around loosely these days, but I really think it does fit. In your case, you've been doing Indians games for so long, a voice, kind of a soundtrack of baseball fans in Indianapolis, if you will. How many, roughly, how many games are you up to now?
1: In the area of approximately 6,600, and this is my 47th season, and every day at the ballpark
0: is still absolutely wonderful. I I, I love that Uh, when I hear someone who's been at something for so long to continue to have that passion, to to continue to have that spark, if you will, for what they do. Is it just because this is something baseball, I think, in particular and and, in broadcasting uh, play by play has been a passion of yours from a very early age, right?
1: Yes, I made up my mind when I was 14. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. It seemed like the greatest way in the world to make a living. And it's been a dream come true. And then specifically, I wanted to broadcast baseball, and it's just been wonderful all
0: these years here in Indianapolis. Okay, you're a native New Yorker, a, Ho- a Hoosier by choice, I guess. I guess you'd say. Talk about growing up uh, in in New York. I know you're a big Yankees fan. Is Sheep'shead Bay is that the is that the area? Yes, it
1: is. And I grew up a Yankee fan. I was born in 1952, and you had a four year period in New York City baseball from 1958 to 1961 when the Yankees were the only team. That's after the Dodgers and Giants had moved to California and before the Mets came into existence. And I became a fan in 1959 when I was seven. The Yankees were the team. And uh, 1961, Roger Maris hit his 61 homers. I remember it like it was yesterday when Max Schumacher hired me I, I had sent him a tape of the Yankee Red Sox game on a reel-to-reel tape, by the way, <laughs> a little before cassettes. But when Max hired me, one of the first things he told me, I know you're a Yankee fan from your tape, that Roger Maris played for the Indianapolis Indians in 1956. And it meant so much to me
0: and still does to this day that Roger Maris played here. Yeah, it's amazing the number of, of, of big-time players who made their way through Indianapolis uh, over the years playing for the Indianapolis Indians but interested Howard in in those early days in uh, in New York you went to college Brooklyn College and while you were in college so you talk about that broadcasting bug you actually did St John's basketball right radio yes. and tv tell t- tell me about that was that was Luke Carnaseca Car- uh, the coach
1: then yes he was And I did that for a couple of years, beginning my junior year. I was at Brooklyn College, was hired to broadcast St. John's basketball. Then I did their football games on TV the following year. And that fall, the fall of 1973, the beginning of my senior year, I wrote 110 letters to every minor league baseball team. Of the 110 letters, I got about 25 answers. And I have to tell you, I was naive. Because I thought the reason I wasn't getting more answers is the letters were being lost in the mail. (laughs) I didn't realize a lot of people didn't respond. There were three job openings. One was in Indianapolis. One was in Spokane. One was in Albuquerque. Spokane also was interested. But Indianapolis hired me. And uh, it's worked out beautifully. I had written to George Steinbrenner. He had just bought the club in January of 73. And he let me use vacant broadcast booths to practice my play-by-play. And I sent the Indianapolis Indians an inning of play-by-play from a Yankee Red Sox game. Thurman Munson knocked in the run. And uh, it was really neat because I got a chance to call a game for the Yankees last year. And uh, Andrew March in New York Post wrote a big article that I'm back in the Yankee broadcast booth. It took me about 50 years to get back there.
0: That's that's a great story. That must have been amazing to be able to a, as a youngster, you know, get in the booth and and have a practice round, if you will, uh, broadcasting from Yankee Stadium. Did, did you anticipate? Were you surprised when, when Steinbrenner, you know, kind of connect, you know, wrote you back and, and made that happen? I was appreciative.
1: I didn't know how he'd react. I was appreciative. I had gone out there the year before and the year before that, sitting in the stands and isolating myself and calling games that way, too. So uh, it's been really cool. And uh, that calling that Yankee game was a big thrill last year in Tampa. And uh, it gives me a nice distinction, Gary, in that I'm the only person ever to do radio play-by-play for both the Mets and the Yankees.
0: I filled in with the Mets in 2014. Wow. Now, now when you got to uh, to Indianapolis, did you have your sights set on going to the major leagues, being a major league broadcaster?
1: Yes, I did. And during the 1980s, when I started applying, I was close several times, once in St. Louis, twice in Baltimore, twice in Cleveland. Couldn't have come much closer. And then in 1990, I was hired to do the high school football and basketball game of the week on Channel 40. And I said to myself at that time, I said, now, wait a minute. I have a great situation here. I work for great people. And now I'm announcing basketball and football, too. So why do I have to leave? And then I didn't put my name out there for 20 years after yeah. that, and uh, yeah. just built things up here.
0: Yeah, you mentioned great people, and before we we move on, I do want to get your take on on Max Schumacher, Bruce. You know the Schumacher family, uh, just incredible people, great baseball people, but great people in general. What's it been like to work for the uh, the Schumachers? Well, it's been wonderful, and Max is my original. Uh, employer,
1: president, and general manager of the Indians. He hired me. He was absolutely terrific. He's now, I think, board chairman emeritus because Max will be 91 wow. in October. And uh, Bruce has been great. He's board chairman and CEO. Randy Lewandowski and Joel Zawaki, also great people. And I enjoyed working for with Cal Burleson, too. He passed sure. away, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. So those basically are the people from whom I've worked. Randy is now president and GM and Joel's assistant GM, and they've been wonderful, terrific people. And I will tell you this, too. This says something about them. During the pandemic in 2020, we had no baseball season. Our season was canceled. And the Indians have one of the biggest, if not the biggest staff in minor league baseball, approximately some 50 people. And they were the Indians were one of about three or four teams in all the minor league baseball that did not fire anybody or furlough anybody during the pandemic with the canceled season. So that speaks volumes about the Indianapolis
0: Indians management. Yeah, yeah, very much agree with that. So, Howard, 6,600 or so games. What um, I know you have an encyclopedic memory. What do you remember about game number one? Well, I remember it very well. It was April 17th, 1974
1: at Bossy Field in Evansville. Oh, wow. the season much later then than we do now. And uh, there I was. I was calling all nine innings. The funniest thing is I almost didn't get on the air. I'm not the most technically savvy. They they explained to me how to set everything up. I get into the booth. The first thing I have to do, and I had never been away from New York at that time. The first thing I have to do is call the radio station in Franklin. We were on... WIFN in Franklin and WNON in Lebanon, and then and I can't even make the long distance call. I don't know what's <laughs> wrong. And then I was told, and this wasn't the case in New York at the time, but you had to dial a one before you make to make a long distance call in Indiana and most places. I didn't know that, so I was struggling for fifteen minutes. <laughs> Trying to make a long-distance call. Finally, I called the operator, and then they explained to me. And fortunately, we got on the air. The Indians <laughs> won the game. They swept the three-game series in Evansville. The first game I ever called in Indianapolis was that Saturday, April 20th. And one of the reasons that stands out, it was against the Omaha Royals, who had a young
0: third baseman named George Brett. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, you think about that, Howard, and, and I you know, mentioned the players who played for the Indians, but also the opposing teams who've come through Indianapolis uh, over the years. You've got to see a lot of young, ultimately uh, Hall of Fame type players,
1: right? Exactly. Uh, a couple here with the Indianapolis Indians and visiting teams, too, as you said, Gary. But here, Randy Johnson huh. pitched, for all, pitched for us all of 1988, and for three weeks— in 1989, before he was traded. Randy's one of the greatest pitchers of all time. He won over 300 games. He won five Cy Young Awards. And then in 89, Larry Walker played for us most of the year. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame a few years ago, left-hand hitting outfielder that had some great years with the Rockies, especially in 1997. And they were teammates briefly on that 89 team. Those are the two Hall of Famers from the Indianapolis Indians during my tenure here. We've had other Hall of Famers who played here before I got here, like Harmon, Killebrew, and and there are others. And then on the visiting side, one guy who really stands out was Barry Larkin. Mm. played against us in 1986 with Denver. Montreal was our parent team back then, Gary. And Barry was coming up with the Reds. And you could see the enormous talent that he had. Now, that same season, the Iowa Cubs had a young right-handed pitcher named Greg Maddox, and Greg <laughs> Maddox won over 350 big league games. But you couldn't necessarily tell at that time that he was going to be a great pitcher because he wasn't overpowering. He really hit his spots. He had movement, and he had control. So and I mentioned George Brett, and those are a few of the guys. I'll tell you another one, Ryan Sandberg. Yeah. Ryan yeah. Sandberg – played against us before he got traded to the Cubs. He played for the Phillies AAA team in 1981, Oklahoma City, and he was a third baseman at that time, and the Cubs later moved him to second base.
0: Interesting. Hey, how about the affiliations? You mentioned the Expos for a while, but for many, many years, of course, uh, the Indians were affiliated with the Cincinnati Reds, which made a lot of sense, uh, close uh, there on I-74. Currently, the the Pirates. When did the— did the Reds affiliation switch to the Expos?
1: Yes. Initially, we had them back again. From 1968 to 1983, the Reds were our parent club. And by the way, we missed Johnny Bench by one year. He played AAA baseball in 1967 with Buffalo. So from 68 to 83, the Reds were the parent club. Then from 1984 to 1992, the Montreal Expos were our parent club. And we had an incredible run there, five championships in those nine years, led by Razor Shines. And then 1993 to 1999, it was Cincinnati again, 2000 to 2004, Milwaukee. And since, as you said, 2005, Pittsburgh, and this is the longest running uh, affiliation we've had. So I I forgot about this. So Milwaukee was, was the parent for a while? 2000 to 2004. We won the championship in 2000, and that's our last championship. I I called six championships we won in the 1980s, eight overall, and it's been incredible, but we haven't won one now in 23 years. (laughs) It's been a while, but
0: 2000 was the last championship. I think it's it's time. I think it's time for another one. You mentioned some of the great players. How about some of the Quirky players? Any anybody stand out? Quirky names? Razor Shine was always a shines was always a a, a fan favorite, uh, certainly when he played for the Indians. Any 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 players stand out for kind of being quirky?
1: Well, Razor stands out the most because he played here for nine years, and uh, his name was Anthony Ray, and his nickname was Razor. And Gary, he's the most popular player in the history of our franchise. We had a day for him when he retired in 1993 at Bush Stadium and only twice in the history of our franchise, 1933, Frank Sigafus, and 1993, Razor Shines, if we actually had a day for a player. And what happened, and added to his popularity, now he was a very good player, but his first year with us was 1984. He was the Indians' team MVP fairly early in the season. Kurt Hunt, who was our PA announcer, instead of saying, now batting, Razor shines when Razor came to the plate, he said, now batting, Razor shines. Razor lined a ball into the gap for an extra base hit, and the crowd applauded. Razor came up the next time. Kurt did it again, and Razor got a line single to center, and then it just took off.
0: (laughs) I do remember that introduction, that Razor shines. That, That was great. Much more with uh, Howard Kalman uh, coming up. I want to talk about Old Bush Stadium and the move to uh, Victory Field, uh, what that was like. Also talk about kind of a scary incident, uh, sent Howard to the hospital right before a game in 2016. We'll talk about that and a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, the voice of the Indianapolis Indians, Howard Kelman. And uh, Howard, you're at Victory and have been at Victory Field now for many years. Hard to hard to believe. But, uh, but one thing about Victory Field to me, as I look at that stadium, as I go to a game or just drive by, the, st- the stadium looks almost as good as it did when it opened. I mean, it really is a meticulously kept ballpark.
1: Well, you're exactly right. And Max Schumacher did a very smart thing when he negotiated the lease with the city. At Bush Stadium, our old ballpark, the city was responsible for all maintenance. When Max negotiated this lease with the CIB, when we moved into Victory Field on July 11th, 1996, Max said to the city, we will pay And we will do be responsible for all the upkeep at the ballpark. And Joey Stevenson and the grounds crew do a great job with the field, but the ballpark and we still have people who say that new Indians ballpark and it'll be 27 (laughs) years old very soon. Right. It's a credit to the Indians front office, the operations department, keeping that ballpark looking pristine.
0: Talk about Bush Stadium, the old Bush Stadium that is now uh, condos or apartments uh, out on West Sixteenth Street. Uh, I used to enjoy going to games there. To be sure, it had a certain mystique to it, but obviously it was time for for a new ballpark because they had a lot of a lot of challenges. What What do you remember about calling games out at the old uh, Bush Stadium? Well, I
1: think I speak for a lot of baseball announcers when I tell you the most important thing is your vantage point. And I had an excellent vantage point. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. When I remember in the beginning, the first few years I was there, there was a vendor who used to sell beer named Zippo. And he used to yell out, hey, 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 I got some home run beer. And that was happening the first game I ever called. As I said, April 20th, 1974. I didn't know what was going on. So anyway, I found out and and Zippo would say that. And there were nights when we didn't have many people in April and May in the ballpark, so I turned the crowd level way up, you could hear Zippo yelling, hey, 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 I got some home run beer. So Zippo came up to me one day before a game, and he said, hey, Howie, I understand that a lot of people say they can hear me on the broadcast. And I said, yes, that's true. He said, you know, you and I do a pretty good job.
0: (laughs) That's good. And, of course, there was Macho Mike, right?
1: Macho Mike Sullivan to the tune of YMCA yeah. Uh, those people. Yeah. He was a really good guy, really nice to have. And he was very entertaining too. And he gave it everything he had when he was on top of that third base dugout. Yeah. And he was very, very, as we said, entertaining. Yeah. Uh,
0: now at Victory Field, great ballpark, great sight lines for fans and, and and really in a lot of ways, you know, they're going there to watch baseball, but it's, as much as anything, really kind of about that experience, I think. And that's how, how the stadium, you know, s- sitting in downtown Indianapolis, the the skyline, and, and it really is an experience to go to an Indians game. Do you agree with that? I agree with that 100%. And you're hitting upon a key point because with the
1: Colts, with the Pacers, with Major League Baseball, everything is the outcome. The people leave unhappy if the Colts don't win or the Pacers don't win. Here, while the fans are pulling for the Indianapolis Indians, it is the experience, as you said, Gary, of going to victory field more than the actual outcome that is the determining factor. So the ballpark, as we talked about, is beautiful. Fans are having a wonderful time. We just completed a six-game homestand. We drew almost 60,000 people, 10,000 a night averaging. And so, yes, it is the experience that people come to the ballpark for, and our attendance is not adversely affected if the team isn't doing well in the standings the way the Patriots and Colts' attendance would be affected.
0: Howard, in your view, how has minor league baseball changed uh, over time, changed since you got into that booth for that first game uh, down in Evansville from any for aspect? What is a different game today? How, how, how would you assess that?
1: well it's changed dramatically in terms of the popularity when i first started in the mid 70s we were drawing 120 130,000 people a year now we've drawn over 600,000 people yeah. a year mm-hmm. so that's the biggest change along with the fact that you have these beautiful new stadiums moving opening up throughout you know not only in indianapolis but throughout the country as well And the fact is that ticket prices are very affordable and Victory Field is very fan friendly. So, yes, minor league baseball in that regard has changed dramatically. And that is the most important change, how well teams draw and what a great situation it is now. When I first started in the mid-70s, we were starting to turn the corner. The 1960s were full of red ink and tough Uh times for the Indians and in 1974, we we may have made five thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah. The key was the Cincinnati Reds exhibition game because the Reds would come in here with Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, Sparky Anderson, and that game was the difference between us being maybe five ten thousand dollars in the black or maybe a hundred thousand dollars in the red. So wow, yeah, if that game was rained out. We would not be able to make it up because of the Reds' schedule, and the Reds would give us $5,000, but we would be losing thousands and thousands of dollars in ticket revenue. And so when I first started that season, Vern Rapp was our manager, and he said to me, the only time you'll ever see Max Schumacher nervous is if it's raining the day of the Reds' game. (laughs) <laughs> sure enough, the forecast, June 20th, 1974, the for- forecast was for rain. It poured five blocks from Bush Stadium, but we just had a little sprinkle. The Indians won the game. Johnny Bench hit a home run, and Max Schumacher said afterward, that made up for all the bad luck I've ever had
0: in my life. That's outstanding. Outstanding. I uh, want to take you back today. Maybe you'd like to forget. June 12th, 2016. Sunday afternoon game right before the broadcast. Tell me what happened there. You had uh, chest pains. Well, I took really good care of myself and still do. And
1: that's probably what saved me. But I thought even though I had a family history, my dad had had a couple of heart attacks. My dad's brother died of a heart attack at a young age. I thought because of the way I took care of myself that I wouldn't have to worry about that. Well, I was wrong and I study health, and as you said, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I got a pain in my left arm and some tightness in my chest. I knew right away that could be a heart attack. However, the pain was not severe, nor was the tightness, and I ignored it for a while, saying, you know, I'm getting ready to go on the air. What if it's nothing? And there's a little lesson out there for other people, too. Even if the pain isn't severe, if you have tightness in your chest and pain in your left arm, do something. I waited. Fortunately, I didn't wait too long after about 20 minutes or so. And they took me to Methodist Hospital and I had a heart attack. But fortunately, there was no damage done to my heart. And so I wanted to get out there and go back to work the next day because I felt fine despite what had happened and i needed several stents because it went to 100% blockage but wow. because there was no damage done to my heart i felt fine and missed 10 days and was ready to go they just said just you had a you had an event here so just take it easy even though you feel fine so i was in the hospital only 2 days and uh i i exercised before but now even more between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes every day and i feel great i haven't i feel
0: i have as much energy now as i ever have had that's outstanding. And I know I read when you came back to the booth after that 10 day hiatus that there were a bunch of cards and letters uh, uh, waiting on you. Did that did that give you uh, some perspective on, on maybe the impact you have on on fans here in Indianapolis? Well, you know, thank you
1: for mentioning that, Gary, because I was deeply touched by that. I heard from so many people. And then I also heard from people around the country because MILB did an article about that, too. And so, uh, yeah, I was deeply touched and uh, it was great to be back in the booth. I wanted to come back in two days, but the doctor said, no, you better <laughs>
0: wait a little while. Hey, hey, do you want to touch it. You touched on this um, in our first segment, but you have had the unique experience of broadcasting major league games. You mentioned doing uh, the uh, Yankees game uh, in Tampa. You also, as I understand it, what the White Sox, the Mets as well. Also Cleveland Cavaliers did some basketball. The Cavaliers was a little different than the others because with the White Sox, I did three games. With the
1: Mets, I did three games. And with the Yankees, one game. But the Cavaliers, during the 88-89 season, I called 21 of their games. Wow, It's a lot of fun. I did the radio when games were on TV. The following year, they got a local guy from Cleveland to do it. But it was neat. That was the year the playoff series when Michael Jordan hit the shot over Craig Elo and went like this and yeah, right. all that game, that was game five on Sunday afternoon. I did call game four, which the Cavs won to send it to a fifth game. That was a really good season for the Cavs too. They won over 50 games. It was a lot of fun.
0: So now I know you, you still have that passion. You're doing, uh, uh, obviously, uh, the Indianapolis Indians, but also high school football and basketball and public speaking, Uh, You've got a very successful public speaking business as well. Well, thank you. It's
1: really a lot of fun. And what I do is I mainly speak to state associations. Like here in Indiana, a couple of months ago, I spoke to the professional insurance agents of Indiana and the Indiana Association of Public School Superintendents. I speak to state associations and I customize my talks about the athletes, coaches, and teams in the particular state in which I'm speaking. So uh, I remember about four years ago, I spoke to Oklahoma Ready Mix Concrete. A week later, I spoke to Missouri Ready Mix Concrete, and the same suppliers were at both speeches, and they were telling me that it was neat that there were two different speeches, one about Oklahoma athletes and one about Missouri athletes. So that's a lot of fun, too, and I enjoy doing that.
0: That's good. What What's next? I I, I sense very clearly you have no no signs or interest in slowing down at all? I hope not.
1: As I said, I feel great. And uh, every day at the ballpark is wonderful. One day you have a two-to-one game. The next day you have a nine-to-eight game. So it, it's that's the beauty of broadcasting baseball. And always remember that baseball is the only sport where the defense has the ball. In basketball, football, hockey, soccer, lacrosse, the defense reacts to the offense But in baseball, the offense, the hitter reacts to the defense, and that's what makes it unique. So you can have a bad ball club, but if you get a well-pitched game, you can win. You can have terrific position players, but if you you don't get good pitching, you may lose, as what happened to the U.S. team in the WBC this year. So uh, every day, the game, baseball by far, Gary is the most unpredictable sport of them all because the defense has the ball.
0: I, I'd never thought of it that way, but that's very true. Hey, a final question. And you made me think of it there in terms of wins and losses for a minor league team. So much of it is predicated on, on the talent you have on the field and and necessarily don't have a lot of control based on what the the, the parent club needs in terms of calling players up does that sometimes get a little little frustrating maybe if in 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 particular if you're in a a hot race uh, maybe for a title
1: you know i just read a book about mickey mantle and one of the fans he got optioned to triple a kansas city and they then he was recalled by the yankees back in 1951 and a fan said in Kansas City. We were in the middle of a hot pennant race with the Indianapolis Indians, and then Mickey Mantle was called up and taken away from us. So, yes, it does affect things. The thing that happens now that really has an effect, which we didn't have years ago, is because of all the injuries that players suffer in baseball in this day and age, there are more call-ups. We are always in favor of a player getting called up when he's ready. We don't want him force-fed and pushed. We want players who get called up to stay there. And so the the feeling always has been a player should dominate at this level or dominate from double A to triple A, dominate in triple A, and that dominate for a period
0: of time before he goes to the major leagues. Howard Kelvin, the voice of the Indianapolis uh, Indians. Howard, it has been a real treat to have you on the podcast Again, you are uh, the voice of the Indians, an iconic sports figure in our city. Great to have you here and uh, wish you nothing but continued success. Gary, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so very much. All right. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Business and Beyond podcast. We are a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.